In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. Amen. Please be seated. Happy St. Patrick's Day. My sermon was going to start with a little bit about St. Patrick, and we will get to him eventually. But my sermon was going to start that way, and it's not, because I left it printed out in my office on Thursday afternoon. Those of you who know me well, like my entire extended family sitting in the back row, uh, might know that I'm a little bit of an overachiever, so I often leave the office on Thursday afternoon with my sermon printed out for Sunday morning. But if you're like me, you may have also woken up on Friday morning to a news flash on your phone or your TV or your newspaper, news of yet another horrifying attack on our cousins in faith, of yet another 20-something white man whose radical right-wing politics and craving for internet glory intersected and exploded into an act of complete and utter evil. I don't know whether this man had what he saw as any kind of active Christian faith, but I do know because he told us, because he wrote it all over the internet and all over his weapons, that he claimed to act in defense of Christian society. I don't need to tell you that this was not a Christian act, any more than the atrocities that we've seen from ISIS and Al-Qaeda are Muslim acts. But as I read the news this weekend and I saw a man looking back at me who looked in many ways like he could be me, I found myself faced with two questions. First, what is it about the culture of white Christianity in the West, of white Christian masculinity in the West, that's so toxic that it's produced a century of unbelievable violence in America, in Germany, and around the world against those who are outside that bubble? But second, how should we, as Christians, not as historians or sociologists or politicians, but as ordinary Christians, how should we respond to this sort of violence. When I think as an American about these explicit acts of white supremacist violence, about Christchurch and Charlottesville, about Pittsburgh and Oklahoma City, about Charleston and Birmingham and thousands of countless lynching sites across our country, I have to admit that I also think as a Christian about what Paul says today in his letter to the church at Philippi. Philippi, you see, was a Roman military colony it was a city where they settled veterans, veterans who had been granted Roman citizenship for their service in the army. And ancient citizenship was not quite like modern citizenship. We think of a citizen as somebody who comes from a particular country. Even if they live abroad, they're still a citizen of their home. And most of us are citizens of America. Almost all of us, I imagine, are citizens somewhere. Not so in the ancient world. Citizenship was a particular thing. You were a citizen if you were a free man who had been born in a particular city, hence citizenship. While Rome had an unusually expansive idea of citizenship, even there, only 2 or 3% of the population of the Roman Empire outside of Rome would have been citizens. And even in Rome itself, it was only about 50-50. So citizens weren't just the people of a country. They were a certain class with their own legal privileges and social opportunities. They were distinct from the people around them who were not citizens or who were slaves. They were, to put it another way, the 28-year-old white men of the ancient world. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen, the book of Acts tells us. Paul could have chosen 
in the face of a radical new religious movement that proclaimed equality and upended the social and religious order of its day, Paul could have chosen to resist it, to fight against it, to persecute it. And in fact, he did. You might remember that Paul, back when he was known as Saul, was hunting the church, was searching for its leaders to arrest them and bring them for punishment. And then he saw a blinding light and heard a voice from heaven. It was the voice of God. And God said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the man who became known as Paul was lit on fire. Not only did he dedicate his life to this Jesus whose voice he had heard, but he directed his ministry specifically to the world's most privileged class, his fellow Roman citizens. So we see early in Paul's career this letter to the church in Philippi, a Roman colony. We see two letters to Corinth, another Roman colony. And we see Paul's most famous letter, his masterpiece, written to the one church that he had not himself founded, the church in Rome. The message that Paul preaches in these letters is not a generic Christianity. It's not just love of God and neighbor. It's not tolerance for those who are different from us. It almost verges on an anti-patriotic kind of politics. Hear what he says to the Philippians. Our citizenship is not in Rome. Our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there, not from Rome. It is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. The source of our eternal health and well-being won't come from the capital city. Our eternal king won't look like Caesar. Our hope isn't in human healers or in human politicians, and thank God for that. Our hope is in a God who breaks into the world from heaven, who bursts into our lives in new and unexpected ways. Now, Paul and his audience shared their Roman citizenship and their Greek language, but Paul wasn't a native of Philippi by any means. He wasn't even a neighbor. Paul had grown up in Tarsus and then lived in Jerusalem, either one an 18-day journey from Philippi. The distance is enormous. It's like the distance from Lincoln to Atlanta in a world without planes, trains, or automobiles. Yet Paul had been driven by the good news that he had to share to make this continent-crossing, seafaring journey. Paul could, of course, have gone another way. He could have continued down his path of violence against the many in defense of the privilege of the few. He could have written to Roman citizens around the Mediterranean, urging them to follow his same path of persecution of Christianity. He could have played up his Roman identity and played down his Jewish identity. He could have bought into the idea of Roman greatness in order to cover up his own sense of weakness. But he chose instead to proclaim an executed traitor as his king, to declare all people equal before the love and the judgment of God, to give up his own elevated status as a Roman citizen and suffer the consequences. And each of this, in our, each of us in our own little way, faces a miniature version of this question every day. Each of us, after all, is the modern equivalent of a Roman citizen. Almost all of us experience the social benefits of being a Christian in America. We can reasonably expect that we'll have this Sunday morning off from school and off from work in a way that our Muslim cousins would never expect to have Friday off to worship. We have Christ Christmas off in a way that they would never have Eid off. 
Many of us experience the benefits of being white in America. While my black friends told me stories in seminary of the police being called on them for being in their dorm common room and looking the way that they did, suspiciously not like Yale students, I never faced that and could just focus on studying. Many of us experience the benefits of American citizenship. We know that wherever our travels might take us in the world, we can return home to a country that is safe and stable and secure, thanks to the work of the many who protect us here. And those of us who are Christian or white or American, let alone all three, are faced with a choice. Do we follow Paul or not? Do we use that power and those benefits and leverage them on behalf of those who don't have them? Or do we do nothing? And perhaps even more importantly, are we willing to learn and to listen from the voices of those who might not exist with those same benefits? Are we willing to give up the moral high ground of seeing ourselves as serving those who are less advantaged, to quiet our own voices and to try and yield, to give over our power, to let somebody else be in control? So this is the part of the sermon where I say, happy St. Patrick's Day. I'm not Irish. Many of us may or may not be. But whether you uh, celebrate with a green shirt or a green scarf or a green blazer or a green sweater, whether you just enjoy green beverages and big parades in downtown Boston, or whether you will just enjoy a simple corned beef and cabbage, it's okay for you to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, even if you're not Irish. Because, after all, St. Patrick wasn't Irish either. Who knew that? Did you know that? Yeah. St. Patrick wasn't Irish. He, he lived on the coast of Britain, and he was kidnapped by Irish pirates. He was enslaved by Irish farmers. He escaped from, and he later returned to evangelize the Irish. But the man himself was Welsh. <laughs> Paul came from Tarsus across the ocean to Philippi. Patrick came from Wales, from Britain, across the sea to Ireland. Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldeans, what's now Iraq, to the promised land that God was bringing him and his family to. This is what it means to learn from those who come outside our own society. This is what it means to welcome the stranger. Now, this is a difficult task. I think it's very hard to shed the patterns, the mental ideas and the behaviors of 18 years of war with Islamists in Muslim countries, of 400 years of American race relations, of 1,500 years of official and established Christianity in the Western world. We're all going to fail. We're all going to offend people and hurt people. And I can almost guarantee in a room of this size that I've already done that in this sermon. At times, it may seem easier to keep our mouths shut. At least that way, we don't take any flack. So I think it's appropriate that our first reading today is a selection from the story of Abraham. On the one hand, we call Judaism and Christianity and Islam the Abrahamic faiths. We're the three religions that trace our ancestry to Abraham. But Islam, in a way, is the most Abrahamic of them all, the one in which Abraham is a central figure in a way that he's not in Christianity or in Judaism. The prophet Muhammad, after all, saw his entire mission as restoring the pure faith that had once been given to and practiced by Abraham. But it's that same faith of Abraham 
that inspired the Apostle Paul. When Paul reads the story that we read this morning, he looks at it and he says, look, God makes a promise to Abraham, and Abraham trusts in God. Abraham seeks to follow God. And before Abraham has taken a single step, before he's done anything at all, when all he's done is looked up at the stars and believed in God's promise of a brighter future for him and for his people, God counts him as righteous. God forgives him for all the little failures and missteps he'll have along the way. None of us can walk through our lives without taking a false step. But it's our very willingness to walk along that path with God, to trip and to stumble, and yet to keep walking on, that's dear in God's sight. We can't save the world on our own, and we don't have to. We're not the rulers of the universe. We're not our own saviors. But we can remember who we are and whose we are, where our allegiance lies and where our ultimate value can be found. For our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.